Uh, it's uh, good to be with you, and I've just really enjoyed looking at these post-resurrection conversations that Jesus had with different people in our sermon series, Our Champion. And so the first Sunday of this series, we found that Jesus is the champion of the traitor as we looked at Peter's story and the conversation Jesus had with him. Last week, we found that uh, Jesus is the champion of the broken as we looked at Jesus' conversation with Mary Magdalene. Today, we're going to continue by looking at another conversation that Jesus had after his resurrection. And this one is with Thomas. So we're going to see through our passage this morning that Jesus is the champion of the doubter. So let me pray. We'll read our passage and we'll uh, see what it might mean for us today. Lord, we thank you so much um, that you are our champion and that nothing would stop you from coming to love us, to redeem us, to extend your mercy and grace to us. We, we thank you so much uh, for uh, this week, uh, especially as we celebrate you coming into Jerusalem with a one-track mind that you are coming into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna to head straight for the cross so that you could pay our penalty for our sin debt in full. And Lord, you did exactly that, and that's why you were able to say and proclaim it is finished. And as we think about that sacrifice this week, May it cause us to, to praise you, to worship you more fully, to live lives more devoted to you. And Lord, as, as we think of the cross, um, may we also think about your resurrection and how that wasn't the end of the story. In fact, in, in some ways, it was just the beginning because on that third day, you rose again. And you decisively defeated death in the enemy. And you offer that victory to us. That through faith we can come to you and we can be more than conquerors with you over the very same things, over our sin, over death itself. Lord, we praise you. As we look at this conversation that you had with Thomas, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts that you would bring comfort where there needs to be comfort, that you bring challenge where there needs to be challenge. You know exactly what we're thinking. You know exactly what we're wrestling with this morning. And so we pray that your spirit would break into our hearts and adjust us uh, in the ways that we need to be adjusted to be more aligned with you and your ways. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let me read the passage for you. John 20, verses 24 through 29. It's the passage. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails... And put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. 
And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. From this passage, we're going to focus on these three things this morning. Doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. Jesus loves us despite our doubts. Take your doubts to Jesus. Doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. Jesus loves us despite our doubts. Take your doubts to Jesus. Let's look at the first one. Doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. Recently, my uh, little brother, not so little anymore, he's seven years younger than me, he got married, and me being the best man in his wedding, of course, I had to give a toast, and, a, and I, had, I had to share a little speech, and as I was thinking about, you know, what to share, it was a, it was a difficult task, because here I've known my brother, you know, all of his life, and um, there's so many different things that I could say, and just so many different stories and memories that I had with him. And, you know, I was struggling, you know, do I share about how we had him convinced when he was seven that he was going to be shipped off to Barcelona uh, to participate in the 1992 Olympics? Do I share about that? Do I share about how disappointed I was that my parents did not name him Michael Jordan in 1987 when he was born. Still upset about that, Dad. So that would have been way cooler, Michael Jordan. Actually, it would have been horrible for him. Everywhere he would go, people would be disappointed, right? (laughs) Check into a hotel. Michael Jordan's here, everybody. The workers are saying, and then it's my brother. That would be a letdown. It was probably smart on your part. But I, I, you know, and this is just my brother's life, you know, and he's a pretty great guy, but he's not Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. So you, you can kind of feel that uh, you could see how John was struggling here, you know, like what out of the, all the things that Jesus did, what do I write, you know, what do I include in my gospel here? At the end of uh, today's passage, as I just read it in verse 30, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John had all this material to pick from, right? And he didn't, you know... It wasn't a stretch for him to have to try and find something nice to say uh, about Jesus. The challenge was quite the opposite. It's like, what don't I include here? 
at the very end of this gospel, if you were to turn, you don't have to, but if you were to turn to the very end, there's this verse in this comment that John makes. He says in, in John 21, 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if there were written, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And he says, amen. I say amen to that as well, right? And so, how did John choose what to include in his gospel? Well, obviously, we believe that God led John to pick certain stories about Jesus' life that he would include. But it also appears that one way that God led John to pick you know, s- specific stories was based on what would help people believe that Jesus is God's anointed king. God's son in whom people can find real life. So that was like the filter that John was allowing the stories to sift through in order to discern whether these story, you know, which stories would be in this gospel. And so I say that because what we have here that we're looking at with this conversation with Thomas, this is really, really, really important. If it made the cut... This story is extremely important. It's a story you need to hear this morning. It's a story that I needed to hear this week. Now, why might this story be included by John? Well, I think one of the main reasons is because it's a story about doubt, isn't it? Doubting Thomas, right? That's how would you, <laughs> you're known for that, right? Uh, That's Thomas. But I think this story is included because God knew, John knew, that Thomas wouldn't be the first, or he wouldn't be just the first person to doubt. That Thomas would be the first in line of many, many other doubters that would come along during during the course of human history. You know, 2,000 years later, many people just still struggle to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Their doubt, like Thomas's, um, can be characterized as unbelief. They just, they just can't believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. They just don't believe the Christian faith, right? There's plenty of people like that. But let me, let me tell you this. Most of the time that the Bible talks about doubt... It's not characterized by just straight-up unbelief of a non-Christian. But most of the time when the Bible's talking about doubt, it's talking about a Christian who believes but is lacking assurance. And this is a crucial distinction. Doubt doesn't always equate to unbelief. Doubt often equates to belief but a lack of assurance or confidence in those beliefs. You see, faith can vary in degree. We can have faith as small as a mustard seed, or we can have huge faith. Also, our faith can fluctuate as well. And I want to emphasize this because some believers, what happens is they start having doubts about 
their subscription to the Christian world view, and all of a sudden they can start believing the lie that since they have doubts, they must not have any faith at all. And that can be a very uh, difficult thing for a person if they're believing that since I have doubts, I must not have any belief. But you see, faith and doubt often coexist. So you need to know that. Faith and doubt often coexist. There's a perfect example of this sort of thing. If, if in Matthew 14, there's this story, and, and you, I'm sure you probably recall call it, but the disciples are in a boat, and it's the middle of the night, and they think Jesus walking on the water towards them. They thought he was a ghost, and Jesus, he... He calls Peter out of the boat to walk on the water towards him. And when Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water, the wind picks up. And before Peter knows it, he becomes afraid and he starts sinking and he cries out, Lord, save me. And then immediately Jesus stretches out his hands and he catches Peter and he says to Peter, check this out. Oh, you Of little faith, why did you doubt? Faith, doubt, together. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter believed, but he lacked assurance of those beliefs. He lacked the confidence of those beliefs. Faith and doubt often coexist in our hearts. We can see this play out in real life, don't we? Or can't we? Think of the, uh, the, the 20-year-old or 19-year-old or 18-year-old that goes off to college, you know, pretty solid in their Christian worldview, pretty solid in their faith. They enroll in some college classes, a philosophy class, and all of a sudden it has them really questioning, wait a second, is what I've always believed and grown up with, is this really what, how the world works, right? You can see it in the adult Christian who's going through a tragic situation and it's extremely painful for them and doubts pop into their head, into their head about God's goodness. Is God really good? Is he really loving? Because my circumstances right now, I'm just struggling to believe that, Right? You know, I I shared, um, if you remember, I went on a sabbatical for a summer and I came back and I shared how um, my struggle with anxiety and how that was, that became a really difficult thing for me and it led to a spell of of depression as well. And you may recall, you may not, but I shared with all of you of how God seemed so distant to me in that time. It was this dark night of the soul, and there were definitely doubts that popped into my head. Is like, God, where are you? Do you exist? Am, have I, am I the one that's bought into a lie, right? Max Lucado, a famous pastor and writer whose books have helped you know, countless Christians live more fully devoted uh, to Jesus. He, he writes this in his book, Fearless. He writes this about his doubts. He says, he writes, they tend to surface of all times on Sunday mornings. 
I awake early, long before the family stirs, the sunrise flickers or the paper plops on the driveway. Let the rest of the world sleep in. I don't. Sunday's my big day, the day I stand before a congregation of people who are willing to swap 30 minutes of their time for some conviction and hope. Most weeks I have ample to go around, but occasionally I don't. Does it bother you to know this, he writes? Sometimes in the dawn-tinted pre-pulpit hours, the seeming absurdity of what I believe hits me. I can remember one Easter in particular. As I reviewed my sermon by the light of a lamp, the resurrection message felt mythic, more closely resembling an urban legend than the gospel truth. Angels perched on cemetery rocks, burial clothing needed, then not, soldiers scared stiff, uh, was dead, now walking Jesus. I half expected the Mad Hatter or the seven dwarfs to pop out of a hole at the turn of a page. A bit of a stretch, don't you think? Sometimes I do. I don't think anybody would say that Max Lucado isn't a Christian, right? And I, too, have had those experiences that Max Lucado describes. We all do. You know, in some Christian circles, having questions, wrestling with your faith, wrestling with God, struggling to believe God's promises, lacking assurance is something that is just taboo, right? You don't talk about it. It's a sign of weakness if you have doubts. Don't talk about it. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity if you have doubts. Don't talk about it. And what I believe happens in these unhealthy environments is that everyone is having doubts at one time or another. But because nobody talks about it, they feel that they're alone. That they're the odd one because they have doubts. And what happens is their suffering is compounded. Because they're suffering, because they're experiencing these doubts, which can be very distressing and difficult to experience. And then on top of that, they're beating themselves up for having them because based on their Christian circles, there's no room for that, you see. And this can cause just real, real pain. And here's the problem. In this kind of environment or in that kind of environment where doubts is something that you don't admit to and you don't talk about, the person that's having the doubts doesn't get the help they need. And they're left alone to deal with these doubts that they have. And so these doubts, they can fester and then they can take on a life of their own. And Satan loves that, right? Here at Abundant Life, I think it's important that we normalize doubts and acknowledge that they're a part of the Christian journey. We all have them to one degree or another at different uh, points along our spiritual journey. Some people have them more than others. Some people are more affected and more deeply affected by them than others are. Some people doubt God's goodness. Some people doubt his power. Some doubt if they're really saved. Some doubt whether or not God really hears them. Some doubt God's plans. 
our doubts are very, and they definitely run the gamut, but we have them. Doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. If you are having doubts this morning in any way, shape, or form in regards to your Christian faith, don't beat yourself up because you're having them. We all do. Number two, Jesus loves us despite our doubts. I really appreciate today's passage because it shows Jesus in his love for the doubter. Jesus is the champion of the doubter. Notice how Jesus handles doubting Thomas. Jesus responds to Thomas's doubts with love that is made up, that has the ingredients of grace and truth. First, the grace. A week earlier, Thomas had declared that, hey, unless I see Jesus with my own two eyes, unless I can put my fingers right into the nail prints, unless I can put my fingers right into the, the, the scar where that spear went through his side, I am not going to believe. And when Jesus appeared to Thomas, does Jesus chew Thomas out? Does, does he say, you fool, I told you that I was going to conquer death, that I was going to rise from the dead, and, and you don't believe it, you idiots. I always knew you weren't the sharpest tool in the shed. You know, does Jesus say that to Thomas? Of course not. What did Jesus do? He said to Thomas, come here. Come here, Thomas. See the scars on my hands? Touch them. You see the wound on my side? Touch it. Feel it. Do not be unbelieving, but believe, Thomas. Jesus showed Thomas grace by giving him the evidence that he needed so that he could believe. Grace now truth, this is another way that Jesus loved Thomas. He extended truth to Thomas. You see, Jesus does mildly rebuke Thomas in verse 29 when he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus was telling Thomas that he should have believed. Believed what? What should Thomas have believed? He should have believed his best friend's report in eyewitness testimony that Jesus was alive. That's what Thomas should have believed. He had enough evidence for the truth of the resurrection in these eyewitness accounts of his friends. He should have believed. Another great example. So, so Thomas needed truth as well, right? Another great example of how Jesus is loving and, and just a, the champion of the doubter is the story of John the Baptist. Many of you know the story. John the Baptist, he was the forerunner. He's the, he was to Jesus. He was the one that prepared the way for Jesus and Jesus' ministry. 
he was the one that when Jesus came to, to him in the Jordan, when John was baptizing people, John said about Jesus, this is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John would have witnessed the dove descending on Jesus in the voice from heaven, from God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. John would have witnessed all that, John was the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Later, we find John in prison. And he's in prison because he called Herod out, one of the rulers there um, in his area, for taking his brother's wife to be his own. And while he's in prison, John the Baptist, he starts having doubts. Was John an unbeliever? No. Was he having doubts? Yes. Did he lack assurance? Yes. Did he lack confidence in certain beliefs about Jesus? Yes. Now does Jesus, so here, here's, what, here's what John does. He sends, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to figure out, to ask him, hey, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? Now, does Jesus uh, send these two disciples back to, to really, you know, give it to, to John for, you know, not believing and, and to chew him out for his lack of faith in this circumstance? No. What Jesus does is he performs different miracles and healings in front of these two disciples. And then he says to the disciples, go back to, to John and tell him what you have seen. And as those two, those two disciples of John are returning to John with what they witnessed, Jesus, before those disciples even get back to John, he says this in verse 28 of Luke 7. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Huh. A guy full of faith and doubt there's not one born of women that is greater than John the Baptist. Bible scholar Gary Habermas, he explains that what's crazy here is that John hadn't yet received Jesus' message. So Jesus was complimenting John while John was still doubting him. Interesting. Doubts. We all have them. So did Great people in the Bible like John the Baptist. And Jesus, he loves us with grace and truth despite our doubts. Now, we need to answer the question, what do we do with our doubts? If we have them and we know it's okay, we don't have to like just beat ourselves up for having them. It's part of the Christian journey. And that Jesus loves us despite our doubts, then what should we do with them when we have them? Well, we need to take our doubts to Jesus and his people. That's the third and final takeaway this morning. If we have any non-Christians here this morning, and I hope we do, not because I think uh, uh, being a non-Christian is, is the right life choice, but because I hope we're a place here where non-Christians come and feel welcome to come and feel welcome to belong here before they ever believe. 
I want this to be a place where people, skeptics, anybody that's wondering about the Christian faith can come and they can get answers without feeling judged or made to feel stupid. And so if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you have not given your life to Christ, you have not trusted your life over to him and have trusted in his life, death, and resurrection to bring you forgiveness of sins and to make you reconciled to God, then you're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, there are some things that I would like to, to share with you. Jesus, like he did Thomas, is inviting you to come and look at the evidence for his life, death, and resurrection. And so I encourage you to look at the evidence. The evidence is spectacular. There are so many books written on this topic that help you examine the claims of Christianity, specifically the, 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 the validity of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. If you need some titles, I've got plenty of them. I have books. I would, I'd be more than happy to let you borrow them. I would buy the books for you, you know, whatever it takes. But the claims of Christianity are so great and so amazing that it would be silly not to really examine evidence. A God that loves you. A God that can work out everything for your ultimate good. A God that can fill your life with joy no matter your circumstances. A God that forgives your sin by paying the penalty for your sins for you in your place. A God that promises to give you a resurrected body in the resurrected world without pain and suffering and sorrow that will never end eternal life. You see, the benefits of Christianity are so amazing to not truly and fully examine the evidence would be silly. And here's the other thing I want to say to any non-Christian that's here this morning. When you investigate the claims of Christianity, when you take your doubts to Jesus, even as a non-Christian, by examining the claims, I want you to be an honest doubter. You see, there's a difference between an honest doubter and a dishonest doubter. Pastor J.D. Greer, he writes this, and I think it's very good. The dishonest doubter is actually rather lazy. He doesn't respond to God's revelation by examining the claims. He is closed-minded, refusing to consider the possibility that something exists which could challenge his comprehension. He simply shrugs off new claims with a flippant, that's impossible, or that sounds dumb. Those statements aren't arguments, they're blind assertions. The honest doubter, on the other hand, will ask genuine questions. This is actually pretty risky because if you ask a real question, it's possible you might get an answer you don't expect or worse, don't like. Real questions put the doubter in a posture of humility and vulnerability. She admits that there is more out there than she may know. Or he admits that there's more out there than he may know. What if God actually answers? And what if that answer shatters your categories? What if that answer demands more from you than you are ready to give? It takes guts to ask an honestly doubtful 
question of God. He just might answer. Another writer writes this. Honest doubt is a sign of genuine perplexity, while stubborn skepticism is a sign of arrogant disbelief. And so I encourage you, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, be an honest doubter. Part of why I think this story is here in John's gospel is because Thomas was on the verge of becoming a dishonest doubter. He was on the verge of just totally shutting out even the possibility of resurrection, right? And he was so close to like saying, I will never believe it. No matter what, I will never believe it. I'm not even opened up to the possibility. My heart is hard to the possibility of it all. And so we got to be careful if we're a non-Christian that we're not becoming a Thomas in that regard. That we're not even entertaining the possibility that Jesus could be the Messiah. And you know what? Thomas had good evidence right in front of him, the apostles' testimony, testimony and, and he didn't even want to uh, consider it. It didn't seem that way. And so if you're not a Christian, could it be that you've been overlooking evidence for Jesus right in front of your face, all around you? Could you possibly be like Thomas, where there's good evidence for God's existence, for his love for you, but you've been overlooking it? And even if you're not sure if Jesus exists, why not pray and say to Jesus, if you're real, Help me to see that you're real. Why not pray that? Why not truly seek to find him? You know, God gives this amazing promise in Jeremiah 29, 13. He says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. One other thing for the non-Christian that might be here today who's considering the Christian faith. I ask you, are your objections to belief in the Christian worldview and to, in the belief that Jesus is the resurrected king of the world, is it really a smokescreen? Do you throw out objections to Christianity and that it can't be true because you really don't want it to be true? And so I asked you that this morning. Some people don't want Christianity to be true. Why? Why don't they want it to be, be true? Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then guess what? There's an authority that's greater than you. There is a God that holds them people accountable, right? And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and he is ultimate authority, then he has claim on your life, which means you're no longer CEO of your life, but Jesus is the CEO of your life and should be the CEO of your life. You know, when Thomas realized that the resurrection really did happen, when he saw Jesus in front of him, what were, what were Thomas's words? My Lord and my God. 
He knew at that moment that, look, if this guy is alive, which clearly he is, this guy, I owe this guy my life. He is everything that he said he was. And you see, there are non-Christians that don't want the resurrection to be true because they want to remain the master of their own life. And so if you have objections to the Christian faith this morning, I ask you, is it really a smokescreen? Is it really you don't have objections so much, but you have an objection to Jesus being your Lord? If you're a Christian here this morning and you're having doubts, you, need, you too need to take your doubts to Jesus, just like the non-Christian needs to take their doubts to Jesus. And I want you to consider the passage from Mark chapter 9 and verses 23 and 24. A father brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus, and he's looking to Jesus for help, and Jesus remarks to the father whose son is demon-possessed, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father responds by saying, and I love this, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm. I believe, help my unbelief. If you're a Christian here this morning and you're having doubts and you're struggling, you need to go to Jesus and you need to cry out to him, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Help me. I'm struggling to trust that you hear me. I'm struggling to, to believe that you're going to work good out of this horrible situation. I'm, I'm struggling to believe that my future is really in your hands. I'm struggling to believe that your plan is good. I believe. Help my unbelief. Give me assurance. Increase my faith. And I also want to tell you, if you're a Christian having doubts, one thing you can't do, and doubts will want you to do this, is to stop pursuing Jesus while you're having doubts. You need to really then lean into Jesus when you're having doubts. Don't stop praying. Don't stop reading and digesting and intaking scripture. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, as we regularly intake scripture, it causes our faith to grow and not only do we need to take our doubts to Jesus, but if you're a Christian here and you're having doubts, I encourage you to take those doubts to a trusted Christian friend so that you're not battling with these doubts all on your own by yourself where they can really start to cause havoc in your mind and hearts. And I also want to encourage the Christian here today that's struggling with doubts. And I'll close with this. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. God is not going to give up on you in your times and seasons of doubt. Even when we, we are faithless, he's going to be faithful, and he's going to bring you out of it. And you know what? When people take their doubts to Jesus, man, look out. 
because they become Christians that know why they believe what they believe. And they have a conviction and a faith that comes out of it that is quite powerful. Doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. Jesus loves us despite our doubts. Take your doubts to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for including a story, the story of your conversation with Thomas. I'm so glad your disciples weren't uh, perfect people. They were quite messed up like me and like the people in this room and through their stories we get to see how great your love is for messed up people for people that struggle to believe for people that have all this evidence around us and oftentimes just don't see it just like Thomas had the evidence of the apostles testimony and just couldn't uh, wrap his brain around it. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your mercy towards us. Lord, I pray that if there are non-Christians in this room that haven't given their life over to you, haven't trusted their life and placed their faith in you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would show them just how great your love is for them, that you would show them just how real you are. And I pray, Lord, that they would be honest doubters, that they would truly seek the truth, that they would seek you to see if you're real with all their heart. And, Lord, I pray that they may find you. And, Lord, I pray also if there's non-Christians here this morning that believe the evidence is clear, you are real. Lord, I pray that they would make a decision this morning to put their faith in you. Lord, I also pray for the Christian in this room that is wrestling with doubts of their own. Lord, I pray that they would know that you love them so much that it's okay. And that as they draw near to you, they'll already find you drawing near to them. And I pray, too, that they would reach out to myself or another Christian friend that they can trust so that they can have support as they wrestle with their doubts so that they can receive answers to their questions. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.